Bibles to Psalm 21. I'm not going to speak about government today. <laughs> Psalm 21. But boy, do I feel better. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'll talk to you. I'm going to feel great right now. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we're in Psalm 21. So take your Bible, look at Psalm 21, and you'll see a superscription over that psalm. You'll see a title over the psalm in some of your Bibles, but you'll see a little superscription and simply says, to the chief musician, a psalm of David. It tells us that David uh, wrote this psalm, and he wanted this psalm, or this song, basically a worship song, put the music, and uh, he turns it over to the chief musician. Okay. Now, Psalm 21 is a follow-up of Psalm 20. And if you were with us last week, you'll remember what Psalm 20 was about. Uh, by way of review, David is ready to go into battle. It looks like it's going to be a tough battle. Uh, the people pray for their king, and then David gets the assurance that everything's going to turn out all right. And so now he's ready to march into battle. <coughs> Psalm 21 is a follow-up. It takes place after the battle is over. Now, let me show you how we know this. If you look at Psalm 20, and look at verse 4, you see what the people pray about. They say to God uh, about uh, David, May he grant you, says to the king, May he, that's God, grant you according to your heart's desire, according to your heart's desire, and fulfill your purpose. When you look at Psalm 21, in verse 2, it says, talking to God, you have given him what? His heart's desire. So the prayer in Psalm 20 has now been answered. Psalm 20 is the request. Psalm 21 is the result. And therefore, now the people are going to uh, respond as a result of this answered prayer. Now, evidently, David, years later, after this particular battle, we don't know which one it was, it has been fought and won, reflects back on the situation. Maybe he's going to go into another battle. He reflects back in history upon this particular battle. And uh, he writes out a hymn. And then he turns it over to be put to music. Now, here's how we're going to outline this chapter uh, for those of you who take notes. Verses 1 through 7, the people speak to God about the king. Verses 1 through 7, the people speak to God about the king. In verses 8 through 12, the speak of people uh, talk to the king. And this deals with the king and his enemies. Okay? And then in verse 13, you have a doxology. We'll divide it into three sections. Okay? Let's look at the words addressed to God. Now look at verse 1. Here's what it says. The king shall have joy in your strength, O Lord. The king shall have joy in your strength, O Lord. And in your salvation, how greatly shall he rejoice. Now, those of you who have been studying the Psalms with us for a long time recognize this as a parallelism. Don't you? Line 1 and line 2 basically mean the same thing. In line 1, you see the word joy. In line 2, you see the word rejoice. In line 1, you see the word your strength. In line two, you see the word, your salvation. So what has happened is that he says, the king shall have joy in your strength, 
And that means that God has basically fought the battle. And in your salvation or in your deliverance, how greatly shall he rejoice. And so this is basically praising God that he was involved in winning the battle. And now the king is basking in the victory. And the king recognizes that God is the one who has uh, intervened and the victory has been won because of God's intervention. Does that make sense? Now look at verse 2. You have given him his heart's desire and have not withheld the request of his lips. Now this is saying the same thing in positive terms and in negative terms. Look at line number one. You've given him his heart's desire. That's the positive term. What was his heart's desire? Win the battle. Now look at the negative term. You've not withheld the request from his lips. David has prayed that God would help him, and God has not withheld that request. And then you have that selah, which basically probably means to think about that for a second. You can trust God. You know God is going to come through. Now look at verse 3. For you meet him with the blessings of goodness. You meet him with the blessings of goodness. Now, if you have an old King James Bible, you don't see the word meet him. You see the word what? Prevented him. What in the world would that mean? Let me read it in the old King James for those of those who have it. You prevented him with blessings of goodness. This is why the old King James is very difficult to understand in the 21st century. The word meet him in the new King James in the modern translation and prevented in the old King James comes from a Hebrew word that sort of means, means just the opposite. It means you go before him. So you need to circle that word prevent and just write in, you go before him. You precede him. So my translation says you meet him, it means you go before him, and when he gets there, you meet him. It's like the flower girl at a wedding. She goes down the aisle before the bride. She precedes the bride, dropping her rose petals along the way, her good blessings along the way. Is that what it says here? Good blessings? Along the way. And then the bride meets up with the flower girl right there at the altar. Well, what this text says is that when David goes to war, God goes before him. The battle is the Lord's. And when David gets there, guess what? God beats him. <coughs> Pretty much the battle is over because David has prayed and said, hey, God, fight this battle for me, and that's what happened. So these blessings of goodness that you see there in verse 3 would simply mean the outcome of the battle that the enemies are defeated. Now, this is a great principle right here, that God meets us with good blessings. That means that uh, God has blessings in store for you before you even know it. See, David has no idea what's going to happen when he gets to the front line. But guess what he knows? God's going to be there when he gets there. And God is in our future. And God has blessings for us right now that we can't even anticipate. But they're there just waiting for us. Remember Oral Roberts used to say this. You know, I don't put Oral Roberts too much. <laughs> Oral Roberts said this. God is a good God. And most Americans don't understand that. We think God's something. You know, because of our backgrounds. You know, the way we were taught. That God's some harsh, 
God. But God's a good God. And God's in our future, and He has blessings for us, and they're just waiting for us. And so that's why we are to make our heart's desire known to God. You tell God what your heart's desires are. And then he says at the end of, the people say at the end of verse 3, you set a crown of pure gold upon his head. And uh, that means that he was, was his government wasn't overthrown. Uh, he was uh, still king when the battle ended. God has placed this uh, very expensive crown upon his head. He hasn't been dethroned. He keeps his crown. So that means line number 2 and line number 1 of verse 3 basically mean the same thing. The good blessings are that he gets to keep his crown. That he's not overthrown as king. Now look at verse 4. He asked, David asked life from you. And you gave it to him. Length of days, forever and forever. Now what does that mean? I know what the first line means. first line says, he asked life. Lord, allow me to live through this battle. And you gave it to him. But what's that next verse mean? Length of days forever and ever. That's not talking about heaven. What does it mean, forever and ever? Is it a hyperbole? Are the people using hyperbole when they said, does that simply mean a long life? Uh, it could mean that. It could mean that God gives us more than we ask. You ask for life, and guess what he's given you? Yeah, more abundant life, a long life. He gives you more than you ask. Hezekiah said on his deathbed, Lord, spare my life. Hezekiah got 15 extra years. Didn't just spare his life, got more than he asked for. They weren't good years, by the way. But uh, they were years. He got more than he asked for, even in a negative way. But... It might mean that, it could be hyperbole, or it could mean that David's crown in verse 3, because verses 3 and 4 are connected. Uh, you're, you have not been defeated in battle, you've got goodness, blessings of goodness, you've got a crown on your head, and it could mean that his dynasty, uh, Lord, spare my life. When David says spare my life, he's saying, Lord, he's not concerned about his own body. Guess what he's concerned about? Spare me that I can be king. That there can be a righteous rule in Israel. So it could be that this length of life, is, which is forever and ever, means that David's dynasty will go on forever and ever and ever. It will be a perpetual dynasty. Isn't that what the scripture says? The scepter shall never depart from what tribe? Judah. And David's the Davidic covenant that God makes with David, that David's dynasty will go on forever and ever, is fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ, who preached the kingdom of God is at hand. The Roman government said, oh yeah? We'll show you what it's at hand. Took his life. But God raised him from the dead, vindicated him, sat him at his right hand, and now he reigns as king of kings and lord of lords. And that goes on forever and ever and includes his life, doesn't it? So it may mean that this dynasty will go on forever and ever. Either way, you get the point. I wanted to give you those options. Now look at verse 5. His glory is great in your salvation. And 
Remember, the people are talking to God. Honor and majesty you have placed on his head. In other words, everything that he has is a result of what you have done. That's verse 6. For you have made him the most blessed forever. And so we know that David himself is not going to be around forever. You have made him exceedingly glad in your presence. And so what he's basically saying is that David's uh, dynasty continues to go, and David has all these honors, and uh, but it's all as a result of God. David's glory is a reflection of God's glory. When you look at David, you just didn't see David. You saw a man after God's own heart. God's image was reflected in David. The glory that David had, David always gave that glory to God. So God's glory is reflected in David. And you know, when you look upon a child of God's face, you should be seeing the image of God in that person. Because we are the recipients of his blessings and all of God's blessings. And his image, we've been made in his image, and that image which was marred by sin has now been restored. And we have the Spirit of God in us, and we should, that Spirit of God in us should be bursting forth in that glory and that honor, and we people should see God in us. And sometimes the only gospel, the only Bible that people ever see is you. You are the gospel to them. You're the one that they see. They don't read our Bible to learn about God. They look at you and they see if they can see God reflected in you. If they do, that moves them to the next step. So we should be reflecting God's image. So look at verse 7. For the king trusts in the Lord. For the king trusts in the Lord. You made him exceedingly glad. Why is that? Because the king trusts in the Lord. Remember last week, what did Psalm 20 say? Some trust in horses and chariots. But our trust is in the name of the Lord. Remember David saying that? It's paid off, hasn't it? The victory has been won. The glory of God is in the face of David. And it's because David trusts in the Lord. And through the mercy of the Most High, he shall not be moved. David will never be overthrown. He will never be defeated. Like the first psalm said, like a tree planted by the waters can't be moved. And so this is the people talking to God about David. Now, let's look at verse 8. Here we have the people talking to David about his enemies. Okay? So here's what it says. Your hand will find all your enemies Notice that's in the future. Your right hand will find those who hate you. Now, some commentators believe that verse 8 is also addressed to God. I don't think it is. I think the subject is changing. I think that they're talking to David about his enemy. When they talk about God in verses 8 through 12, they talk about God in the third person. You'll see this in the Roman. So I think that they're saying to David, your hand will find all your enemies. You will ferret out your enemies. Your right hand will find those who hate you. There are people, there are nations that hate David and are plotting the overthrow of his government, their overthrow of Israel. David doesn't know who they are. They're in back rooms somewhere in other nations plotting a war. But the people say, David, you're a man that trusts God. 
And therefore, you'll figure out who these people are and who your enemies are. And that's what verse 8, I think, means there. And then verse 9 says, You shall make them as a fiery oven in the time of your anger. Uh, well, what happens in a war? And you march into a city and you fight a war. Guess what happens to that city? That city is just absolutely destroyed. It's burned to the ground. And that's what they did in Bible times. You burned cities to the ground. And that's what this is describing, that David makes those cities like a fiery oven in his anger. Now, some of your Bibles have the word you're in capitals, and I think that's why people think this is addressed to God. But in this next part of the verse, notice how the word Lord is used in the third person. The Lord, see, if they're talking to David, this would make sense. David, the Lord shall swallow them up in his wrath. It won't be you fighting this battle alone. Even the future battles will be the Lord's. Their offspring you shall destroy from the earth and the descendants from among the sons of Men. Now, what does this describe? Well, this describes when you go into battle, you don't only kill the, the warriors in the battle, but you kill their, their descendants. And why do you kill their descendants? What, now, this is very important because what's happening is the children are going to be killed. What was the strategy in those days? You killed the children, why? Yeah, because they're not going to come after you later. Now, this is where things get real hairy. Because if this, if they're speaking to God, they're saying God is killing all the children. And this is what causes liberal theologians to say, God kills children? That doesn't sound like Jesus. Jesus welcomed children. And that's what causes liberal theologians to say, there's a God of the Old Testament, a God of wrath, and a God of the New Testament, a God of love. And that's what I was taught when I went to a very liberal seminary. As if there were two gods. There was this tribal God of Israel. And then there was this loving God of Jesus. And he identified as the Father. Totally different. Well, don't let that confuse you. That's not what the scripture says. Now, God can't do whatever he wants. God's the creator. He can think everything. If he wants to wipe off everybody off the face of the earth, he can't. One day there will be a great judgment. But this doesn't necessarily speak of God. If it's speaking of David, it's talking about David's strategy here. His strategy is to burn the cities. His strategy is to destroy the offspring and the descendants lest they rise up. This is how the people proceed. could be speaking of God, but uh, it does not necessarily have to be. But there's a slaughter. Now what's the reason for the slaughter? Look at verse 11. For they intended evil against you. They devise a plot that they are not able to perform. So here we have these nations, these evil people plotting an overthrow. We're not going to be able to perform it because God's going to go with David. He's going to win the victories. But this is a very interesting verse. Did you see that word intended there? They intended evil against you. Uh, it's a graphic word. It's a picturesque word in the Hebrew language. It means to stretch. And it was borrowed from a couple places. One, one place it was borrowed from the weavers, uh, the practice of weavers taking yarn 
and stretching out the yarn before they began to weave it. So that when it was weaved, it wasn't all crumpled up. And so they would stretch out the, the yarn. But it can also have to do with archery, where you stretch <laughs> low, <laughs> and you make that string very taut. Uh, when you're running and you take aim, you know, and you pull that back and you take aim. A couple uh, lessons ago, we saw how David was told that he was given a golden bow to fight the enemy. And this is that same kind of a language where you stretch this cord back with your arrow and you take aim. Now look at verse 12. Therefore, you will make them turn back. Uh, you will end up, uh, they're not going to be able to perform and do what they want to do because they're going to have to retreat uh, in the battle. You will make ready your what? Arrows on your string toward their face. So see, I think that that is the imagery of uh, what the enemy intends to do is stretch forth his arrows and defeat you come and fight you in war, but you will not succeed because uh, you will repel them, you will make them retreat, and you will make ready your arrows and your string toward their faces, and so the enemy is routed. So I think this is a description of the enemy being routed because David has God on himself. And then we have the doxology. So what do the people do? They go into exaltation and praise, and they say, Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing praises to your power. And so they recognize that this is all God's doing, and the battle that David fights is not David's battle alone, but it is the Lord's. And therefore, in the end, God gets praise. The honor and the glory. Now, let me ask you a question. These psalms that we've been reading about, if each one dealt with a battle that David has been ready to fight, praise to God, and guess what God's come to? And that's good. But what happens when God doesn't come through? What happens when your enemy comes against you and you pray until you can't pray anymore and God doesn't come? Well, see, that's what Psalm 22 is about. Look what David says. Now, by the way, notice it's to the chief musician, set to the deer of the dawn. It's a psalm of David. Now, look what David says. My God, my God, why have you what? Forsaken me. So here is what you have when God doesn't come through. You have the word why. David can't understand it, so he says, Why? kept the law, I've been a man after your own heart, uh, why would you forsaken me? He says, why are you so far from helping me? And from the words of my groaning, oh my God, I cry in the daytime and you don't hear in the night season and I'm not solemn. And then he said, but. And then he gives an explanation of why God doesn't always answer our prayers and it seems as if we are forsaken. And of course you recognize that verse. 
as the verse of Jesus Christ. Uh, was Jesus forsaken by God? <laughs> it's a big theological question. Uh, we do know that Jesus was raised, but not the Lord was saving, and God said he wanted to come, and that's what we'll pick up with next week. Okay. Lord, I thank you for this song. Uh, that it has hope for us. You are a God in our future. You are a God who goes before us, meets us at the deadline. You are a God who has blessings in store for us, blessings of goodness. And Lord, help us to look upon you uh, in this life, even in this song, where there is death and devastation. For those who are called your enemies, we see that your people are blessed. Help us to be, receive this blessing, Lord. Not feel guilty about the blessing that you give to us. And then, Lord, help us to turn around, reflect your glory to others, and be a blessing.